Well, good morning. I would ask you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at both a little bit out of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, and I'll explain to you in a moment what we're going to be doing here this morning. But it is good to be back. It's been uh, five weeks since I've been in the pulpit, and, and, uh, and it just seems like forever and the blink of an eye at the same time. So, but it is good to be back, and I'm excited to uh, be in the Word and to be able to study together. It's been a good, eventful few weeks from a little time off and then a trip to the Czech Republic. And, but now it's good to be here and get ready and wrapped up for the fall. But uh, before we begin here, I'd like to uh, just open our time in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, I do thank you for Jesus. I thank you for him as our foundation, our life, the bedrock to everything. God, I thank you that we get to join together and to sing our praises and to, to fellowship with each other and just to be your body. And I pray now that as we spend a few moments in your word, that these moments would be rich and that they would just instruct us deeply into how to live and walk with you and for you and in you. And, uh, and I'm just grateful that we get to be together and to do this as your body. So Lord, just now I pray that you would uh, speak through your word so that we might be more like Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen. You know, a few weeks ago when we were, the team was in the Czech Republic, we had a, a wonderful time, first of all. Hopefully in the next week or two we'll be able to share with you some things that happened on that trip and, and just the opportunities God gave us to serve him. But uh, I had an interesting experience there that I want to share with you. Uh, at the end of the trip, we had a chance to go to a couple of different cities in the Czech Republic once the missions camp was over. And, uh, and, and in most of these cities, there are cathedrals, you know, beautiful cathedrals and these old, old buildings, um, you know, cathedrals that are older than our whole country, you know, just these. And the, and the architecture is just incredible when you see these buildings. And those of you who have ever been to Europe, you know what I'm talking about. And, and it, you, sometimes you're in awe when you see these huge buildings that were built in the 1600s and you think, how did they get up that high, you know, without cranes? And how did they get all the supplies up there? And you begin to start looking at the, the, this. And then you see the, the intricate artwork and the, and the paintings on the ceilings. And, and you know, just, it's, they're beautiful. They're absolutely gorgeous. And, and in the stained glass windows, you'll see, you know, the, the, the story of the gospel on the stained glass or, or some other Bible story up, up on the ceiling. And everywhere you look, you just see passages of the Bible played out. And, and so you can go through and, and look at it and see it all. And for us, you know, we're we don't, we don't, not used to cathedrals. You know, we, we see that. We just kind of go through it. We're just like, wow, this is incredible. And, and you, you sense the awe of it. And you try to take a picture knowing the picture won't capture it. And, uh, but I had a conversation with one of the Czech guys about the cathedrals. One of the local guys that was with us, giving us a tour around and different things, and we were talking to him about the cathedrals, and of course, we're all in awe, just, you know, taking pictures and just getting into it, 
And they were just kind of walking through it, nonchalant. And you're thinking, oh, you know, they're used to it. This is where they grew up. And uh, I was talking to somebody about it, and I said, you know, when you go through these cathedrals, what goes through your mind? And uh, one of the guys said, you know, architecture. I said, that's it, huh? It's just, just architecture. Yeah. And I said, what about like the Bible verses or the, you know, the stories in the stained glass or these beautiful mosaics on the ceilings? What goes through your mind when you see those? Do you, do you see like these, the story of the gospel right there? No. No, I don't see anything Christian about this building at all. Like, really, why? He said, these buildings were built, one, one guy said to me, these buildings were built on the backs of my ancestors. They stole our money, forced us at the threat of death to be part of this. And if you look at these communities, they're poor. People didn't have anything. And so when I see a gold statue on a ceiling, I see a robber. I see a thief. I see somebody who stole. I saw people get their head, you know, think of people getting their heads cut off because they wouldn't submit to the authority of the institution of the church. There's nothing Christian about this building at all. It's just architecture. I was thinking that's a pretty powerful statement, isn't it? Now, I'm not trying to speak for everybody in Europe. I'm not trying to speak for every cathedral. Um, just that one conversation, it, it hit me. When he went through there, he was thinking through his history, through his past. And, and to him, he, he sees that the church, when they were building those buildings, had lost something. The heart of God. You know, God's heart wasn't in this. God wasn't designing, you know, called. God didn't make disciples. You know, Jesus didn't die on a cross to call us to go pull people into a church and kill them if they don't come. Right? He didn't do that. He didn't say, okay, cut their heads off if they don't, you know, give you money so you can build a gold statue of Joseph. He didn't say that. And to him, he's seeing this. He's thinking, this isn't Right? The heart of God isn't in this building. I see oppression. I see death. I see evil. I don't see anything Christianly about this building. So that, that conversation stuck. I talked to a couple guys about it on the trip, and I've been thinking about it a lot because I was thinking about the fact that taking it as a challenge for me, taking a challenge for us as a church, you know, it can be easy to lose the heart of God. It can be easy to kind of go through and do your thing and, and build your system. And yeah, we're not cutting people's heads off. You know, I mean, we're not doing that kind of stuff here. We're not that oppressive. But that doesn't mean that we haven't lost the heart of God, right? It doesn't mean that maybe we've missed something. And so I was thinking, as I'd like to use August, always to kind of set the focus and, and just make sure we're kind of hitting a tuning fork and saying, okay, are all our instruments in tune here? Are we thinking right as we approach, as we all come back from vacation and we're all gathering back to, you know, attack another year? I like to use August as a time to say, what, what is the heart of God? And I wanted to do that this year, this week, and Lord willing, next week, to kind of just hit some what I want to call key pillars of the church. You know, the church is built on the foundation of Jesus. And then there are certain pillars, certain bedrocks, certain structures that are to hold us, certain truths that would define us. And these truths are really kind of embedded into the very heart of God. You know, 
the calling of being part of the church isn't necessarily a calling to, to just some kind of static institution. It's a calling to actually be part of Christ, to share his heart, to share his passion, to share his, who he is, and to reflect that into the world. So we spent a lot of time in Ephesians over the past few years. We taught through the book a couple years ago. I've personally studied it a lot over the past few years. It's just one of the books that's kind of gripped me personally. And in the book of Ephesians, I've kind of noticed that there are five pillars. I just want to call them out. Five pillars. Five things that Ephesians teaches about the very heart of God, the very heart and essence of what God's people are to be when they gather. And I just want to, over the next two weeks, cover all five of those things. Here are the five things, the five pillars. We talk about what is the church and what are the structures of the church. There's five things that I've learned in the book of Ephesians. First, the church is to be a learning community. We're going to go over that today, so I'll just leave that there. Church is a learning community. Second, the church is a welcoming community. We're going to go over that today, so I will leave that alone. But third, the church is a nurturing community. And so the church is to gather and to build each other up. And Lord willing, we'll talk about that next week. Fourth, the church is a global community. It's supposed to have its eyes on the world. God is calling people from every tribe and nation. And fifthly, the church is to be an advancing, reproducing community. We're to be making disciples, make disciples, and we just start kind of infecting like roaches everywhere we go, you know, just, just going everywhere, you know. These are kind of the five things that I've seen in the book of Ephesians that define the church. And I just want to talk about these today, and I just want to lay them out for you, show them to you how I see them in the book of Ephesians from studying it, and just to kind of say, hey, you know, when we think about Jesus as our foundation and, and then building, what are we really supposed to be doing? How are we going to ensure that we have the heart of God so that we're living our purpose, living our, our reason for being here? And then just saying, hey, let's just be committed to these things as a church. So let's look at these, okay? I want to begin just by looking at the very first one. The church is to be a learning community. Now, would you just look here in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. <coughs> Ephesians 1, 16. So follow along as I read. <clears throat> Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now this prayer... <clears throat> falls on the heart of Paul, having just explained all these great things that God has done. God the Father planning salvation. God the Son accomplishing salvation. God the Spirit applying salvation. These incredible things that God's doing. God's plan to unite everything in Jesus. He's explaining all that, and then he says, now, now I pray for you. Because of all these things that God has done, because you have faith in God, he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you. Paul's praying for them, remembering you in his prayers. Now, I want you to notice his prayer, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, I want to just take a moment. Let's unpack that prayer and then, and then really see what he's saying here. Notice Paul in this prayer, verse 17. Notice the way he defines God. I love it when Paul writes a prayer out. I mean, he's just so wordy. 
And he says so much, and it's so rich. Notice his prayer. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an interesting of defining God, the Father. You've got the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that is redeeming people, calling people to himself, doing this incredible work, you know, sovereignly over the world, appointed as judge of the living and the dead. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, now, now I'm praying to the God of that one. Now, what does that mean, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ? He's acknowledging that in the Godhead, there are different positions. The Father has a role, the Son has a role, Spirit has a role. The Father has a role, he comes up with the plan. The Son's role, accomplish the plan. The Spirit's role, apply that plan. These are these roles. And he's saying, listen, I am going to the one who came up with this whole plan for all of creation. Right? The very source of everything. The, the one who commissioned the Son to die for you and to redeem you. I don't know if it's this way or not, but it's kind of like going to the manager when you're upset at a restaurant. You know? It's like going to the one who's in charge in one sense. Going to the one who came up with the plan. Now, this is important, and, but store that piece of information in your head about God the, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the second description, then we'll put them together. The Father of glory. The Father of glory. What a description of God. So, let me try to explain this to you. <clears throat> we refer to the glory of God. What we're referring to is every single attribute of God. His goodness, his love, his mercy, his judgment, his wrath, his, everything. All that God is, that's his glory. So whenever you see like the glory of God, it means God just showing you who he is. All of his attributes all at once. They're just kind of shining forth. Right? You ever meet like a really happy person? You go in the room and they're just happy and bubbly. And when, when they walk in a room, you're just like happy. Or an angry person walks in a room they're just, and, and then suddenly you start feeling defensive, right? Because who they are is shining out of them. Well, the only way to refer to who God is is to use the word glory because he's everything. He's love, he's mercy, he's peace, he's kindness, he's justice, he's rule, he's judgment, he's everything. And he says, now, I'm praying to the one who created every single attribute. Praying to the one who has it all. So this is an intense prayer. I'm going to the one who rules and came up with the plan, who's the very wisdom of God, and who's the source of everything you need. That's who I'm praying to. Okay, so I go to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you a spirit, notice this, of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Again, power-packed statement. What does he mean, a spirit of wisdom and revelation? The word spirit can be translated a lot of different ways. I think the simplest translation of this is, is, uh, is, is to understand it is like when you're riding a bike. When you're a little kid, you don't know how to ride a bike, right? And it's just kind of wobbly because that inner balance isn't there. And so like, and then they kind of ride a little bit. Like as a parent, you push them and you think they got it. But it's just your inertia that pushed them. They don't got it, right? So then they stop pedaling, boop, they fall over. And you're kind of doing it again. And, and you just kind of keep pushing them. And teaching your kids to ride a bike, you know, was not, I don't know, in the movies it seems like it's that fun dad thing to do. Hey, you know. 
But in real life, I was like, come on, just get it. <laughs> it's like, it was not fun for me. But you're kind of moving them along, and they're trying to get it. I'm sure it took them longer because of my stress level right now. <laughs> but you're trying to get them to get it. And then one day, they just start pedaling, and they're like, I got it. And they're going. And then they get on the bike by themselves. And from that point forward, that little inner thing can always balance on a bike. Now that means that you have the spirit of riding a bike. You get it. You get it. That's what he means, I believe, when he says the spirit of it. I think what he's saying is that I want you to get wisdom. I want it to suddenly click, ah, the wisdom of God. I want it to click, ah, the revelation of God. Now that's my operating system. So the kid who doesn't get it, gets on the bike, his operating system is just to fall. Boom, he can't, he can't do it. He needs you holding on the whole time. That's his operating. And then once he gets it, it's like, let go, Dad. Let go. Can I go faster? One of our kids, when they got it, the bicycle thing, they were up on this deck. They're like, I'm going to ride down the steps. I'm like, no, stop. <laughs> you don't got it that much. Okay. Once they get it, they get it, and they want to use it. That's what it means, the spirit. He's like, I want you to get it. That's what I've been praying for. Now, what is it that he's supposed to get? Well, wisdom and revelation. Oh, oh boy, Paul's words, right? What does wisdom and revelation mean? Let me give you two simple definitions of those words. You could say it this way. Wisdom is the understanding of the purposes of God. Which means you walk into a situation, and you can say, this is what God would want from me right now. Life is filled with a variety of unique moments, and you don't always know what to do in all of them. And I can't sit down and create a book of every possible scenario you're going to face this week. Right? I can't do that. I can't say, this is what, here, this could happen tomorrow, this could happen, and if this happens, then this, and if this happens, then this, and if this happens, then this. Right? I can't do that. And I can't create a 24-hour phone line for you to call all the time when you face your situation. Okay, so this is the wisdom hotline, you know. You got a problem. Hello, wisdom hotline. Okay, this is what you're to do now. Goodbye, click. Right? I can't do that. And Google isn't wisdom, right? So you can't Google everything, right? What he's saying is, I want wisdom to be inside of you. So that when you're in that weird situation where you're like, what do I do? You've got a spirit of wisdom. I know the purposes of God at this moment. I can act. That's what I want. I'm praying that you would have that. And Revelation then... I like to say this way, wisdom is the purposes of God. Revelation, then, is the plan of God. When the word revelation is used in the Bible, it's always about what God is doing, where he's taking things, his eternal perspective. Right? His big picture plan. This is where this is going to end. Why is the book of Revelation called the book of Revelation? Because it's the plan. It's the consummation. It's the end. We're revealing to you his purposes, where he's taking history. So that this would govern you. And you would have an eternal perspective. That you wouldn't just live in the moment and go, oh my, this moment stinks. All of life stinks. Wait a minute. I think there's something more than this moment. Suddenly I'm starting to think about the plan of God. So, his prayer is this. God... You are the source of the entire logic of history. I'm going to you. 
And you are the source of every blessing and attribute that exists. So I'm coming to you on behalf of this church in Ephesus that they would act out of wisdom all the time and that they would be grounded in the very purposes of God and plan for God for the ages. And I want that to click in you. I want it to click. God, I'm just asking that it would click so that they would walk everywhere, that they wouldn't need a wisdom hotline, that it would be in them. This is what he's praying. But notice this prayer, how it kind of all comes together, because he says that he wants them to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In the knowledge of him. So now all of this comes from the knowledge of God himself, knowing God. Now we've got to unpack this a little bit. The Greek had a couple different words for knowledge. One word they had was a word that meant just knowing something factually. Uh, This is, uh, we just had a wedding yesterday, right? Exciting day. And uh, whenever we have a wedding, you know, I do premarital counseling, and ahead of the premarital counseling, my first statement in the premarital counseling, those of you who've been through it, is in one sense, what we're about to do in premarital counseling is a big waste of time. (laughs) Wasting your time. Because you're not married. And everything I tell you, you're going to go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do that totally. Totally. I already do it. We're already doing it in our relationship. We forgive each other perfectly in our relationship. That's why we're getting married. Right? We got this nailed, right? And, and a lot of times, not all of you who have done the wedding, so I'm not trashing you here, but some, some in other churches would sit there <clears throat> And they would say, they look at you kind of like, yeah, we got this. We got this down. Right? Now, what kind of knowledge is that? That's just what I would call informational knowledge. I can sit down and tell you, when you fight, this is the proper way to respond in humility and in godliness and in Christian character, right? I've actually been in premarital counseling situations where I've sat down and explained to people how to love, how to forgive, blah, blah, blah. And then go home and get mad and violate all of it. And it's going on in my head like, Steve, 15 seconds ago, you just told everybody what to do. Yeah, but I'm right. You know? <laughs> you know like, I mean, the battle goes on, right? But, but you have this like an informational knowledge. And then, of course, you get married. You get on the other side of it. And then it's like, really, that's when we should start it. Right? Because on the flip side of it, You start going, oh, you know, and I oftentimes will say, go back to the book after about a month of marriage, read this section, and I think you're going to go, oh, now I know why you're saying that. Now this week, why? You have a totally different kind of knowledge. You have experiential knowledge. You've actually lived with this now. You've actually carried it out. When he says the knowledge of him, he's not talking about going out and buying 57 books of doctrine and just reading them so that you could spew off every kind of doctrinal knowledge that there is under the sun. Now, that information isn't bad. But what he's saying is, I want you to actually have knowledge that is real, genuine faith. 
real genuine knowledge of God, that you understand that God is so in control of the world that when chaos breaks down, you actually say, but God is in control. I'm freaking out right now, but I'm hanging on to God. I have that kind of knowledge. I really believe it. It's an experiential knowledge. And what he's saying is, when you start to understand God in real life, in real terms, then all of a sudden, the wisdom and the revelation begins to take root. And what Paul is praying is he's saying, listen, this is what I want to have happen in your life. This is how I want you to grow. This is how I want you to be a disciple. This is what I'm praying for. Then you say, okay, Steve, this is just a prayer. Why would you say that you're getting a point out of this that the church is to be a learning community? <clears throat> a couple of reasons. Number one, because Paul wrote it down to the church. He wants them to read this. Right? He's not just praying it in private. He's saying, guys, I want you to know this. And not only that, he wrote a lot of words to them, explaining to them who God is, explaining to them how God works in time and space, explaining to them the essence of these great lofty truths of God and how they, how they flesh out in real time and how it would look when people forgive and how it would look when people walk by faith and how it would look when people shun evil and embrace righteousness and those kind of things. And when Paul left Ephesus, he left a pastor there by the name of Timothy. And Paul wrote a letter to Timothy. And he said this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 16. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then he goes on to say, and I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. He's saying, I want you to teach this stuff. I want the church to know this stuff. Because when they begin to understand the fullness of God and all that he did in Christ, and you begin to unpack it for them, when they start embracing that, and the very Spirit of God, I believe, will open their eyes and give them a spirit of revelation, give them a spirit of wisdom. That they're now grounded in the wisdom of God, the purposes of God, they're grounded in the plan of God. They can see life with an eternal perspective. That's what the church is supposed to be. This is why I believe in Acts chapter 6, the apostles are you know, facing this crisis, and they say, do you understand? we got to be about prayer in the Word. It wasn't because they were lazy and they didn't want to work. It's because they understood that the role of making disciples is to see people grow in the full, true knowledge of who God is, that they might be governed by His wisdom and governed by His plan and purposes in the world. That's the essence of the church, one of the roles, one of the pillars. And what I want to say is that this has to remain a key aspect of who we are. It's why we do it. It's why we teach through books of the Bible here. It's why we commit so much time to you guys hearing the word taught. It's why we're doing the connections hours that you could come in and, and unpack more so you could see who God is. So that wisdom would take over. So that when you leave here, you don't get into the middle of the week and go, man, I have no idea how I went from where I was Sunday when I was praising God to where I am today on Wednesday. And I feel so far away from God. And I feel like I, I just don't have any wisdom, like I'm not making all the wrong decisions. We don't want that. We don't want that. We want you to really understand who God is. And that's one of the pillars. Now, there's a second pillar. 
<clears throat> Won't take us as long to get through the second pillar here. The second pillar is found in chapter 2 of Ephesians. <clears throat> and the second pillar is that the church is to not only be a learning community, but it is to be a welcoming community. And I say, what does that mean? Well, let me kind of set the context of the early church for a moment. Just a little background so you'll understand this. <clears throat> when the church was first formed, it was formed by Jews, right? The apostles. So Jesus sends into heaven. The Spirit of God comes upon the apostles. They start preaching the word, and thousands of Jews are getting saved. Thousands of them. It's just this huge miracle, right? I mean, Peter preaches, and several thousand get saved in his first sermon. Powerful moment. But they're all Jews, which means they all kind of share a common heritage. And the heritage that they share is one in which a, a group of people that have sought to at least align their behavior to the Word of God, to the law of God. So they didn't do the things that the world did. They didn't act in that sort of way. They didn't have that kind of some of those behavioral issues. They, they weren't marrying 15 wives. And they weren't given to all kinds of you know, drugs and alcohol and wild orgies and things that the Gentiles were doing in the Roman Empire. It was, it was them. They, they didn't do that. So when they all got saved, they kind of shared this common heritage and they could connect well together. But then God starts pushing the apostles out into the Gentile world. And all of a sudden, some guy comes in with his five wives and his crazy lifestyle and his weird dress and all these stuff going on where he's clearly of the world. And the Jews are going, hey, that's a little kind of bad. We'd like to just have a Jewish church over here. And if all the hippies want to go over there and have a hippie church, just kind of put them over there in Hollywood, let them do it, right? Because we want our church over here where we're, you know, at least when our kids come in, they're all dressed the same. But this guy coming in with his five wives, man, it's just creepy. And so they were dividing. And the church was going through a division to such a degree that not only just within the first couple of years of the church, when money was collected for the widows, they weren't even feeding the Gentile women because they had such disdain for the world, such disdain for the worldliness that they said, no, we'll feed the Jewish women, these, these pure godly grandmas, you know, that just, you know, taught us the Bible from when, you know, we were little. Not them. They're in that situation because of their lifestyle. They brought it upon themselves, right? So we're, not, we're just not going to feed them. Big problem in the church. Paul addresses this problem here in chapter 2. Because in the beginning parts of chapter 2, he starts talking about salvation. And he's saying, man, you were dead. God made you alive. And then he goes to apply it. And I want you to notice how he applies it. And first, it seems like he's loading the gun against the Gentiles. Because look at verse 11, right? He's just defined salvation. Saved by grace through faith. And then in verse 11, he goes to apply the, the salvation. And notice what he says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now I want to pause, pause there. He's saying, okay, now you Gentiles, okay, because in this church you got, you know, Jews on one side of the room, Gentiles on the other side of the room. And Paul's saying, now you Gentiles... 
you guys are clearly Gentiles. And in fact, the Jews call you uncircumcised. Now you might say, well, what does that mean? That's an insult. Do you remember David, little David, 12-year-old David, standing up against Goliath, right? He's coming out there bringing food to his brothers. He brings food to his brothers, and there's Goliath out there in the middle, you know, yelling and cursing against the Jews. And, the, you know, the army, Israeli army, is kind of hanging back because they're scared. And what does David say? 12-year-old, good hubris going on in the 12-year-old. Who is this uncircumcised Gentile or uncircumcised Philistine? You know, uncircumcised. That's an insult. Who is this godless person? It's another way. When you see a Jew calling a Gentile uncircumcised, godless you can insert. Who's this godless man? That's what he's saying. Remember, he says, at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called godless by the Jews. Remember that. Remember, you were there. He's, he's, he's hitting the tension between the two. Now he goes on, and at first, it seems like he's piling on. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And all the Jews are going, preach it, Paul, preach it, yeah! You know, like they're thinking, this is the moment. He's going to stand up and put those Gentiles in their place. You know, that's what we need, more of those kind of sermons, Paul. (laughs) Go after those Gentiles. What's he saying? He's saying, remember, guys. You were separated from Christ, right? You were not connected to the Messiah is what he's saying. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel means you didn't experience any of the blessings that God gave to the nation of Israel, the economic blessings and things like that. Strangers to the covenants of promise, meaning you had no idea what God was promising in salvation. He says you have no hope and you were without God. You were godless. So Paul is saying, I know that those Gentiles were in a really bad place. Those feelings you're having, Jews, it's exactly. Out there in the world, this was their state. They were bad. Paul, Paul is not trying to whitewash them at all. They were in a bad place. They were godless, and they had no hope. But then notice what he says in verse 13. But now... Here's the contrast. In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And every Gentile at that moment goes, hallelujah. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses them. And they're going to come in with the scars of their past. They're going to come in with the the marks of, of all the the, the riotous living that they had. They're going to come in with that. But God is not saying to them, clean up your act, and then you can have a seat at my table. He's saying, I'll clean up your act, because I want you at my table. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, the blood of Christ has to give me what I want to call The prayer life of Abraham. What's the prayer life of Abraham? There's a lot of connections that get made between the United States and uh, and Sodom and Gomorrah, right? 
We're like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're like Sodom and Gomorrah. God's going to judge America because we're like Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see that. We, we see these connections. And, and, and we want to kind of pound the pulpit and say, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah, God's going to judge us. His judgment's coming. Right? We want to do that. But Abraham, what did he do for Sodom and Gomorrah? He interceded for them. He said, God, could you hold off your wrath for one righteous person? Could you please hold off your wrath? You're a merciful God. Could you have mercy on these people? Mercy just for one? Five, ten, you know? I mean, he's just he's going down. He's negotiating with God so that God would be merciful upon these people who are wretched, who tried to abuse one of his own relatives. And he's showing it. God, have mercy on him. I was thinking the blood of Christ can heal someone who's far off. And we know that blood of Christ in our lives. We've been washed clean. We've been set free. We of all people should be the first to say, you are welcome to see the table. I'm not going to whitewash your sin. I'm not going to whitewash it. I'm not going to pretend like it didn't exist. I'm not saying we're an open and firming church in that way, right? Where everybody can just sin. What I'm saying is you can be healed. You can be set free. If you come into this place, I will tell you about the blood of Christ. They can wash you and give you a seat at the table of Jesus. So when I say the church should be a welcoming church, I'm not just talking about being a friendly church. What I'm saying is is a, a group of people that have been so overwhelmed by the power of the cross that we can't wait to extend it to someone who's far off. We can't wait to, and, and that we want people to come so that you can hear that Christ can heal you and deliver you out of all of the paganism, all of the wretchedness, all of the insecurity that a licentious lifestyle leads. Someone's caught in homosexuality. You can be set free from that burden. Someone's caught in, in just, you know, messing around, sleeping around. You can be set free from that burden. You can be set free from greed. You can be set greed, free from anger. The blood of Christ can draw you near to God. And what I want to be driven by is that blood, is that element. Instead of having a heart that says, hey, man, I want to be one of those angels, you know, bringing fire from heaven. You know, God didn't leave me here to be that angel. He left me here to tell people about his blood, about the cross. The church is going to remain true to its footing, it has to be a welcoming church. We have to build everything on that pillar of the cross that Christ died to set you free. So, let's wrap it up. What are we getting at here? There are two pillars we've looked at today. We'll look at three more next week, Lord willing. That the church is to be a learning community, a place where we engage and unpack the truth of God and pray that people would get it. And the church is to be a welcoming community, a place where we apply the blood of Christ in the way we treat each other. So how would that look for us? Well, I think as we think about it as a church, we're always looking for ways that we can be together, that we can understand God, that we can unpack his truth so that you would know it and be grounded in it. But then it also comes by saying, then we also want to be in an environment where we say, come, you're welcome to hear about Christ, this Christ that rules our lives. 
And all that we do have to, has to be governed by that. So leaders of the church, we can't lose sight of these two. We've got three more to look at next week, but we can't lose sight of these pillars. And in all of our decisions, we've got to make sure and ask ourselves one question. Is what we're doing helping us achieve this or not? And if what we're doing is helping us achieve it, then let's do it. Because this is what we want to be, you know, contribute to. Because what I would hate to have happen a hundred years from now, somebody walk through this building, whatever state it'll be in a hundred years, and go, oh yeah, there was that church that met in this building, and they were horrible people, you know. Oh, my grandparents went there. Oh, you should read their journals. You know, it's a horrible place. We don't want that. I don't want our great-grandchildren saying about us what that Czech guy said about that church there. I want to make sure we hold on to the heart of God. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the blood of Christ. It heals us. It takes us who are far off and makes us near. God, may that heart just govern us. But God, we need to know it and understand it, and I pray that we would. I pray that all that we do as a church would make us better disciples of Jesus, that we might carry on his work and show the world his love. Thank you, God, that we get to be your body in this world. May we be true to this as culture shifts around us and the way things look shift around us and the way people do church changes around us. Lord, whatever happens, whether we meet in a building that's our own one day or whether we're driven to be an underground church, whatever happens, may we never lose sight of these pillars. May they own us as your people. In Christ's name, amen.